sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Can you tell me what these songs have in common? The answer should tell you the theme of today's show. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. First, the answer to our musical quiz, and in order, Blondie's Heart of Glass, Bruce Springsteen's Hungry Heart, Pat Benatar's Heartbreaker, Kanye West's Heartless, and the Backstreet Boys, The Shape of My Heart. If you guessed heart is the title of each of these hit songs, then you guessed correctly, and it shouldn't be too hard to figure out the theme of today's show. It's our Valentine's Healthcare Show, which means it's time to talk about hearts and brains, and more specifically, how to prevent and what to do about heart attacks and strokes. But first, February is American Heart and Stroke Awareness Month, a time when all people can focus on their cardio and cerebrovascular health, and we devote the show to those topics. If you have questions regarding heart or brain health, then this show is for you. We start first with stroke awareness and speak to Dr. Gregor Brzezinski. He is a neuroendovascular neurosurgeon, Here in Jacksonville, Florida, he is affiliated with HCA Florida Memorial Hospital in Jacksonville. Dr. Brzezinski, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for having me on the show. It is so good to have you in studio as well. I'm going to get us started. We want to talk about stroke with you. What are the most common signs and symptoms of a stroke that people should be aware of? So we use acronym FAST, and FAST means face, so asymmetric face, arm, um, for A, which is arm weakness, and S is speech. So speech disturbance, unable to speak, do not understand what is being told, or producing words which do not make sense. And the last is T, which is time, which is the most important thing to do 
is to call 911 as soon as you can when you notice those symptoms. We also add B in, in the beginning, which is balance, and E is for eyes or the eyesight if there's a loss of vision. I appreciate that, and that's kind of easy to remember. How You mentioned time uh, in that acronym. How crucial is early recognition in minimizing brain damage from a stroke? I mean, it's by far the most important thing. Um, every minute you lose essentially millions of neurons in your brain and probably billions of connections. So um, this, the faster you get help, uh, it's the most beneficial thing you can do. You are an endovascular neurosurgeon, and uh, oftentimes I'm talking to neurologists, which are also another group. Help our listeners understand your role in the management and care of people who have strokes. Uh, just that we talk about stroke, with, for, specifically for ischemic stroke with a neurosurgeon is, is a huge change in the paradigm of what we do. Um, roughly in 2005, their studies came out showing that actually intervention for large stroke is very beneficial for the patients. And that's how neurosurgery got involved in this field. Um, what we do on our side is there's certain population of patients who come in early enough and have a large vessel occlusion, meaning there's a clot or thrombus in a large vessel that we can remove. And if we can remove it on time, we can prevent a very large stroke. So this is our primary role right now. I love it. And it's great to hear that this has expanded to involve this larger multidisciplinary team. Once upon a time, when people had stroke, not much was done. So this is a very big change. Absolutely. It's, it's a very exciting time. I mean, we, we have an answer for a lot of patients uh, who have potentially a life-threatening stroke, which, I mean, it's a huge change in the last uh, 15 years or so, 20, 15 years. Now, I know that folks out there will be listening to this, and, and, and sometimes it's just easier if they know of a story or a patient story that, that you can share without violating privacy. But is there a story that really has stuck with you that highlights this impact of quick action, getting to the hospital, and getting literally to someone like you who can do something dramatic to save them? Uh, I actually remember the story, and that's from my training, when um, we got a um, relatively young female in the emergency room with an acute stroke. Um, we did a procedure, removed the clot. She had a fantastic outcome. But what's the most important thing is that her daughter, who was 11 years old, actually called uh, EMS because her mom was having a stroke. She was able wow. to recognize it, call her, call the EMS, and get her to the hospital within half an hour. I mean, that's kind of the most amazing thing when you, when you talk about, you know, outreach and teaching people what to do, that even kids can do that. That is amazing. Uh, for an 11-year-old to call the ambulance for mom, and now she has mom is able to that's be right. mom, really. Right. We are in the theme of Valentine's, and oftentimes, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of issues when it comes to stresses and things of that sort, um, either because you want to have the, the, a memorable time with the showing someone you love uh, your feelings or something along those lines, or maybe it's all rebutted. Uh, my question is a very simple one. Stress comes up a lot. Uh, it, it seems like no matter what, anxiety and stress are very common issues for everybody. Um, how does stress play into stroke? Uh, is this a risk factor for stroke? Is it separate? Uh, how how does stress play a role, if any? I think we actually, at this point, we have a pretty good idea that, you know, stress definitely increases the risk of uh, uh, cerebrovascular and cardiovascular disease. Uh, stress induces hypertension, uh, can increase the heart rate, um, you know, it releases the cortisol in your blood, um, that your blood can be more prone to have clots. Um, and that's kind of how you can have a higher risk of, you know, heart attack and stroke. So it's definitely, you know, a factor. And there are multiple studies actually proving that um, 
connection between stress and increased risk of stroke or um, cardiovascular disease. Are there things that we can do uh, that helps to relieve it, or is it, uh, it whatever works for stress? I mean, there are definitely, you know, if you address and manage the stress, you're definitely you're going to lower your risk of stroke and, you know, cardiovascular disease. As hard as it sounds, I mean, in, in, in the world, and we work, all work and, you know, all have stresses, you know, in our jobs, it's really hard, but you have to find time for yourself, you know, you know, have a good sleep, um, you know, limit the amount of alcohol you drink, you know, have a um, meaningful conversations with your significant other, which, you know, for Valentine's Day, that's, that, that's a you know, definitely good thing. Um, you know, do not smoke, you know, learn how to cope with stress, with meditation, simple breathing exercises or exercise today. There, there are a lot of things we can do. Uh, we just have to commit to that. I love that, and 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 you're right. Uh, we should be having meaningful conversations with our significant other during this uh, particular holiday. A lot of times, diet plays um, a big role in all of this. Um, are there certain things that you think we should be doing or avoiding nutrition and diet wise that helps to, well, basically to prevent from someone having to see someone like you right. who we want to see at the right time. So I mean that in a kind way, but, but so that they're not in an emergency. I mean, in general, you know, eat healthy, heart healthy diet. Good. It's good for your heart. Good for your brain. Um, you know, limit amount of, you know, sugars, um, fats, um, you know, include as much, as much, you know, vegetarian diet as you can, leafy greens, fruits, you know, nuts, um, try some omega three rich foods like fish, you know, eat lean meat. Um, I mean, it's all kind of the part of the Mediterranean, you know, diet. Um, if it's good for your heart, it's definitely good for your brain. Got it. We are going to be talking about um, heart issues uh, with a cardiologist uh, in uh, this latter portion of the show, but I want to bring up how it connects to the issue of stroke now. Uh, one of the things that uh, we know is that funny heart rhythms, um, uh, such as atrial fibrillation, uh, for one, um, that those are potentially linked uh, to the risk of stroke. Um, what should we be doing, if anything, to help prevent that risk, if you will? Are there measures that a person can take to monitor or to manage those funny heart rhythms so that we don't have strokes? I think first thing it's very important that actually if you experience um, a very um, high, high heart rate without you know exercising or feel like you have a abnormal heart rhythm, meaning irregular heart rhythm, you should definitely talk to your primary care physician. Now, if you develop you know, chest pain, dizziness, anything which would um, resemble a heart attack, you should definitely come to emergency room as soon as possible. So actually recognition that actually you have it is, is probably the first uh, and very important step. And then, um, you know, in terms of uh, treating abnormal heart rhythms, um, there are different type of medications um, uh, to control the heart rhythm, to um, thin your blood so you don't create clots in your heart, which is one of the reasons people have stroke with AFib. Um, and also there are some uh, procedures that, you know, cardiology probably is going to talk about it a little bit more than that, but there are definitely a lot of options. I appreciate that. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and if you're just joining us, it's our Heart and Brain Health Show, or Valentine's Day show. And we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tag me on X at Servan. I want to ask about other type of risk factors. Um, are there lesser known risk factors that people just don't think about that you think may be a useful thing for folks to do, think about, or try in order to prevent strokes? I think one of the things that 
probably not a lot of people think about is that actually obstructive sleep apnea is, is one of the significant risk factors for stroke. Um, there's, we estimate that maybe even half of the strokes that happen at night are related to obstructive sleep apnea. And that's, that's a condition which, you know, it's relatively easily recognizable and can be treated like with a CPAP machine and this can significantly decrease your risk of stroke. Um, the other interesting thing is actually in females, the, you know, migraines can, people, you know, females who experience migraines can also have a higher risk of stroke. And we don't know exactly how this link is kind of exactly works, but there's definitely um, some, it is definitely a risk factor. So managing migraines um, and managing risk factors of stroke in, in people who have migraines might be very important. That's a good point. Um, let me kind of play it out. Let's say someone has had a stroke. They've, they've, uh, it just, they didn't get there in time. It, it couldn't be managed enough to prevent it. What does rehab options these days look like? And how critical is that rehab support to kind of get better quality of life? It, rehab is definitely the, one of the most important things um, after you actually had a stroke. That that gives you a, a best chance of, you know, best recovery you can get. So the way it works right now, when you're admitted to the hospital with a stroke, we will get physical therapy and occupational therapy as well as speech therapy uh, to come in and evaluate you and start working with you. Um, the next step, they will determine what level of rehab do you actually need. Um, the people who have a major stroke, they will probably will go to an inpatient rehab unit for very intensive rehab. People who have a um, lesser stroke with less symptoms, they can be managed as an outpatient. Um, but generally speaking, the you know the rehab is very important. We we think that um, about you know we have about a year for recovery you know from your stroke, and you know brain can create new connections and uh, some injured parts of the brain you know can be substituted with parts that are working but they need to rewire but you have to sort of force the brain to actually work on it it's like you know working a muscle um, works the same way essentially so if you don't use something you're going to lose it so that's why the rehab is so important let me get uh, to your uh, area of medicine and that is as an endovascular neurosurgeon what advances in vascular neurosurgery, like in managing these blood vessels of people as it relates to stroke, aneurysms, and things of that sort, have been made recently that really have changed the game, whether it's stroke prevention and treatment, or maybe other innovations that, that we just don't know about and people don't realize until they have to meet a, a specialist like yourself. So in general, they're, they're, you know, we deal with two types of strokes. Uh, one is the ischemic stroke, which, which is essentially the vessel being clogged up and not you know, bringing the blood flow to the specific part of the brain. So this is the part I think we made a, a tremendous progress over the you know, last few years. And you know, devices that I use right now, they pretty much were not even available when I finished my training. So this is a very fast evolving field in general. Uh, what we're trying to achieve with those new devices is to get to the clot as fast as we can and, and be very efficient in removing it, potentially just using a single device with a, what we call a single pass, meaning just one, you know, if we can just engage the clot once and remove it in a single action, that's probably you know, the best for the patient. It's all about time and efficiency. Now, on the hemorrhagic side, so with the bleeding side, with the aneurysms, is the same thing, you know. We majority of the aneurysms in the United States right now are treated, you know, endovascularly, meaning going through the vessel rather than doing it a large surgery, and you know, clipping the aneurysm. So we also, you know, have you see a tremendous, you know, amount of new devices coming on the market with um, which enable us to treating more and more complex aneurysm, which previously required a, a large surgeries. Now. The surgery for an aneurysm, an open surgery for an aneurysm, which we call a craniotomy, it's something opening the head and, you know, clipping the aneurysm, it's still there and it's still a very important part of our armamentarium. We still use it uh, quite a bit for aneurysms, which we think are best treated this way. So overall, it's a very exciting field. There are a lot of new things coming in and I think we can treat the patient safely and, you know, effectively with very little downtime, which matters a lot. Um, so I'm very excited to be part of it. Let me ask about um, like when someone has an acute stroke and they find it that there's they, you've identified a clot 
in a blood vessel enough that someone like yourself can go after it. Can you take us to uh, give us a sense of what does that look like in terms of what happens to the to the individual? Is that a is that cutting something open? Uh, what what happens in order? How do you pull a clot out of a blood sure. vessel? I guess is the easiest uh, question. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean it takes a village to do it in the right way and 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 in a good time. So it all comes from the ER doctors to you know radiation radiology technicians. Um, it it's a really a team team effort. So first, you know, we, when you come to emergency room, you, you'll get a head CT um, just to look at the brain, just to see there's no hemorrhage. Then um, the neurologist on call usually will evaluate you if you can get the clot busting medications through IV. And then we'll go ahead and do another CAT scan, this time with a dye to look if any of the major blood vessels is clogged. And that's what um, I came into play. Okay. So once we identify there's a, there's a clot in the vessel we can access, um, then we'll take you to the IR suite, which is a place that we have a specialized machine that actually can do those procedures. And then from now on, um, we'll get anesthesia on board too. So there's another team who comes in to help us, you know, keep you comfortable and keep you safe and control your blood pressure. Um, and, you know, there are different ways you can do it under sedation, sometimes under general anesthesia, it kind of depends on the patient. And then we access the artery, it's even in the wrist or even in the groin, so we need a large artery to access it. And it's a, it's a tiny little incision, it's essentially like putting a big IV in, in your artery. Okay. And from now on we use catheters, which are like those long hollow plastic tubes, and then we access the vessels in your neck, and then you know we inject dye, identify the, ves- the target vessel, which is closed up, and then we use the different devices, it can be a, a, essentially a suction a vacuum, so we advance the catheter and, you know, um, turn on the vacuum, which actually, you know, sucks the clot into the, to this plastic tube or it gets lodged and we can pull it, you know, under suction. We can use also like a special stents, which are attached to a wire, which kind of the clot incorporates in it, and then we can remove it together. So different techniques and we kind of choose what, what we're going to use based on where the clot is and, you know, how your vessels are connected to each other. How quick is the so uh, so? I'm looking at like uh, to me that sounds perfect. You suck a, a clot away; it goes out into garbage. How quickly does the person recover when you do that? We actually sometimes you can see all improvement actually on the table. Wow! The patients, you know, they, they their speech improves. They're able to move their limp. It's not usually completely back to baseline because the brain is still kind of stunned, but you could see actually improvement very quickly. To uh, our listeners out there, if they have a family history of stroke and they're worried that that could be me, uh, what's, what's your best advice to those listeners who want to prevent this from happening if they've seen their own relative have it? I think it... Um Definitely keep up with all the screening that your primary care physician orders, your, your blood work, um, your blood pressure, um, the other thing, definitely diet, um, exercise, everything you do for kind of a healthy living. Um, it's usually in terms of, you know, screening just because you, somebody from your family had a heart attack, if there's no, I mean, had a heart attack or stroke and there's no like specific reason for it that can be familial, there's not, I'm not sure if there's any real, real role of like a specific screening. Just try to, you know, stay healthy um, and keep up with your, you know, annual checkouts with your primary care physician. I think that's, that's probably the best advice. In our last moment here, um, it, it is Valentine's Day. Um, we are talking stroke, heart awareness. I want to make sure I give you the last word uh, in terms of what, do you want to share with our listeners uh, out there in the area uh, or nationally for that matter um, with regards to this topic? What, what message do you want to make sure you leave with them? I think time. Time, time really is the key here. Um, if you see somebody have a stroke, please call 911 and get help as soon as you can. Don't sleep over it. You know, I, I've seen patients who didn't want to come to emergency room because their heart I mean, their arm weakness is going to go away or, or speech is going to get better. No, you have to act immediately and come to emergency room or call 911. Dr. Brzezinski, I want to just say thank you so much. This has been 
such a, a terrific conversation. Thanks for giving us, uh, I know uh, you're, you're a very busy uh, physician. Thanks for coming in studio and joining us to talk about this hugely important topic. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. It, it was our pleasure. We've been talking to Dr. Gregor Brzezinski. He is a neurovascular endovascular neurosurgeon at HCA Florida Memorial Hospital here in Jacksonville, Florida. Up next, we turn our attention to heart health after your weekly health headlines. And we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is What's Health Got to Do With It. Here are your weekly health headlines. The FTC takes aim at drug patents to lower prices. In a bold move, the Federal Trade Commission challenges over 100 drug patents listed in the FDA's Orange Book, a unique strategy to combat soaring drug prices. The agency argues that patents covering delivery devices for certain drugs, such as inhalers and EpiPens, should not delay generic alternatives. The pharmaceutical industry pushes back, emphasizing legal compliance and requesting clarity from the FDA. Despite resistance, the FTC's initial letters have already prompted some companies like GSK to withdraw patents. This crackdown aims to dismantle patent thickets that impede the entry of more affordable generics into the market. Neuralink's brain chip implantation signals future possibilities. Elon Musk's Neuralink achieves a major milestone by implanting its device in the brain of its first patient. The chip, designed to interpret neural activity for controlling external devices with thoughts, offers hope for individuals with quadriplegia. Musk envisions a future where the technology called telepathy enables rapid communication for those who have lost limb functionality. The successful implantation positions Neuralink among companies pioneering brain-computer interface technology, overcoming regulatory challenges, and marking progress in the field. There's a resurgence of syphilis that's reached alarming levels. The U.S. witnessed a surge in syphilis cases, reaching the highest level since 1950. Total cases exceed 207,000 in 2022, with a 17% increase from the previous year. Experts attribute the rise to drug use, risky sexual behaviors, and declining condom use. The alarming increase in congenital syphilis, despite being preventable, underscores the need for renewed public health efforts to address this resurging sexually transmitted infection. And those are your weekly health headlines. Getting back to Valentine's Day, how can we have a Valentine's theme show and not talk about the heart? Our next guest is here to guide us on the latest on heart health. Joining us in studio is Dr. Sebastian Carasquillo. Dr. Carasquillo is an interventional and peripheral vascular cardiologist and is affiliated with HCA Memorial Hospital. Dr. Carasquillo, it is a pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on today, guys. Now, let's get right into it. We talked with our first guest about brain and stroke health. Um, let's move to the heart. What are the key things that a listener out there can monitor or manage to maintain their heart health on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I mean, I think it all starts out with, you know, what our exercise capacity or how much we're moving during the day is. I think that's, you know, where we should start off with everyone else. Obviously, we always put a, uh, a lot of weight on, you know, diet as well. Um, things that you can kind of watch out for as a average Joe out there is, hey, you know, am I making the uh, strides to park my car a little farther, you know, try to walk into the hospi hospital <laughs> yeah. work, 
you know, take the stairs, not the elevators and things that you should be monitoring for. Everyone knows what your blood pressure is, what your heart rate is. And, and most people know, hey, I'm not where I should be or my weight. And those are just little stepping stones that you can use to achieve, you know, heart health and uh, things that everyone kind of, as a layman's, knows what it is. One of the things that comes up often around the time of Valentine's Day is there's a lot of focus on relationships and our connections uh, to others. Um, we've heard stories about people who actually die uh, from a broken heart. And I don't, I don't want to delve into that aspect, but I am kind of curious, what role does emotion in positive relationships contribute to heart health? You know, interestingly enough, like you mentioned, there's definitely something called the broken heart syndrome or Takotsubo or stress-induced cardiomyopathy. So obviously, you know, happiness relationships play a pivotal role in our health and, and overall a healthy relationship, a positive experience. Um, you know, they release certain hormones, certain neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, and all those promote uh, beneficial effects on the CV system, whether that's, you know, decreasing your blood pressure, increasing your blood pressure. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to have an opportunity to talk a, bit, a little bit about the broken heart syndrome as we kind of move on into our conversation. What lifestyle changes as a cardiologist who's out there practicing, what do you wish people would do uh, in terms of like, you know, if I had to make a change in my life to reduce the risk of heart disease, what would be that thing that you'd say, this is the, the top thing? I know there's several, but what would be the top thing in your mind? Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, I think the American Heart Association makes, you know, pretty stern recommendations that those patients that are at risk by dropping 20% of our weight, which you know sounds wow. like a unrealistic yeah. expectation at times, right? But that's when you really see the benefits of dropping your uh, blood pressure, decreasing your bad cholesterol. Um, so, you know, Again, it all goes back to activity, and I think that's how we started our conversation talking about that. So making those lifestyle changes reduce the risk of heart disease, and and uh, you can easily incorporate these things into a family setting, something that you can do with your significant other, whether that's, you know, hey, we live in Florida, let's go outside, walk on the beach, let's go hike some trails. Um, so I think we're very fortunate, especially living here in Jacksonville, you know, gives you excellent opportunity to go hiking, and that also provides that one-on-one -on -one time with your significant other and leads to great conversations, so... I love it. I know one of the big things about uh, the holiday of Valentine's is that oftentimes people go out to dinner. It's very hard to get a reservation anywhere. So specifically, when it comes to food and nutrition, are there specific heart-healthy foods, whether as a couple or as a family, that people should be gravitating towards to improve heart health? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think everyone's heard of that low salt DASH diet. Um, you know, as a cardiologist, we obviously live and die by that, but I understand that that's not a realistic expectation for the general population. Um, if you ask me, you know, what I try to incorporate into my practice and my daily life with my family, we're very big on the Mediterranean diet. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, it really affords you the ability to eat everything you like. Yeah. I have a lot of people that come into my office and say, hey, doctor, you know, I had a heart attack. Does this mean no red meat? Right. right. Um, and I think what you really got to focus on is build those meals around the vegetables, the fruits, the herbs, the nuts, uh, the whole grains. And, you know, you still afford yourself a modern amount of dairy, poultry, eggs, and the Mediterranean diet's very big on seafood and we're, we're a coastal city, right? So yeah. we should take advantage of that, take advantage of, uh, the shrimp we have, the, the, the great seafood here. And obviously, you know, red meat once in a while, everything is moderation in life. Got it. I asked this question to um, our, our neurosurgeon who is at the top of the show with regards to stress. And I mean, let, let's face it, um, everyone is reporting mental health, feeling overstressed, just just modern life that way. Um, I'm curious, like, are there practical tips to how we can better improve stress so it leads to a healthier heart? Because I'm sure that's a contributor. You know, I think nowadays mental health has become the forefront of a lot of uh, people's health care. And, and especially as a clinical physician right now seeing patients, a lot of patients come in, for example, with, with palpitations. Let's use that as an example. And, 
you know, I would say 75% of that is, is stress-induced. And, you know, in this country, unfortunately, we are at a crisis with, with mental health. And it plays a ginormous role in your cardiovascular health. And I think this is kind of a good opportunity to talk about that broken heart syndrome that we had mentioned sure, earlier, right? Sure. So, you know, when you are under mental or physical stress, your body has a response, right? Your heart rate goes up. Your blood pressure goes up. It's it's a release of catecholamines on a molecular level. and that has some effects on the CV system that can lead to the heart mimicking signs of heart failure, signs of heart attacks. And, and people come in just like that, you know, saying, hey, I think I'm having a heart attack or they can't breathe because they have fluid all around their heart. And essentially the heart gets stunned because of this. The heart function goes down and you can experience chest pain and swelling. And so, you know, there are uh, phenotypic or manifestations that you can see and, and mental health leads that or plays a role or is the leading etiology of that. You know, it's such a, a huge issue uh, when it comes to just trying to manage stress. One of the things that people do is exercise. And I know you've brought up exercise. Are there certain exercises that are better for the heart than others? I get that question. As a neurologist, I get that question. I go, what, what, what's the thing I should be doing if I had to pick one? How do you answer that question? I mean, if you have to make a blanket statement, right, luckily there's a lot of resources out there and I always kind of rely back on the American Heart Association and there's pretty, pretty clear recommendations, 150 minutes of moderate exercise. Um, you know, Is that pretty, a, a week or a day? A week. A week. <laughs> okay, I just want to make yeah, sure. <laughs> no, no, no. 150 <laughs> minutes a week, uh, you know, spread throughout the seven days. And, you know, that can even just include brisk walking with your significant other, your four-legged friend, cat, dog, whatever you got. Um, and then also, you know, or 75 minutes a week of high-intensity aerobic training. Um, I mean, uh, CrossFit is, is, is big right now. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously for someone that maybe is a little bit younger. Um, resistance training twice a week, okay, um, building that lean muscle mass. And, you know, there's other funner activities and you know, tis the season we're talking about Valentine's day. Um, yoga is a great way to kind of, uh, promote a healthy relationship and a healthy lifestyle. Um, some people do meditation. Okay. Um, again, like I said, walking the dog, weightlifting, pickleball is a, a fad now as well. So that's also a good place to start, but no, there's not one exercise that I can say, Hey, do this and it will be better or worse. Right. Got it. But it sounds like there's tons of options. Absolutely. And I guess pick your poison. <laughs> I, I, lo I love it. I love it right there. What, with regards to family history, uh, for those who have, let's say, a relative that ha they've had a heart attack and they're just kind of very worried that that's my future, are there things that people who have family that have had heart attacks should be doing more in terms of following and managing things? Yeah. I mean, I think start with the basics, right? So irrespective of whether you have a strong family history, you always need to start with, Hey, are you smoking? There's no room for smoking. If, if you're drinking alcohol, it should be in limited quantities and we'll get into that. Um, good nutrition obviously is vital and, and keeping an eye on your blood pressure. I think something that sort of goes uh, under the table where people don't give enough emphasis is sleep. Sleep is very important. I'm sure you as a neurologist have plenty to add about that. Um, and the American Heart Association even makes recommendations regarding the amount of sleep we should be getting. Um, and then there's other things, you know, starting at the age of 20, you should start getting into routine medical care, checking your cholesterol every four to five years and, you know, just basic routine screening. There's definitely a lot of weight being put on preventative measures right now in, in CV health. And um, it all starts with identifying those high-risk patients and, um, you know, changing your follow-up based on those results. There's a lot of heart disease that occurs in the winter, sometimes even in relationship to Valentine's Day and February in general. Um, what can communities do to help raise awareness, promote heart health in general? You know, I, I was thinking about this question earlier as I was driving to work, and there's a lot of things that, as a community, for example, quickly come into mind, uh, turkey trots or um, the, the Gate River Run. And, and I think that Valentine's Day is one of those holidays that puts a little bit more emphasis on, on CV health because you're seeing hearts everywhere, right? And so I think, you know, as a community, that would be something fun. 
um, that we could try to come up with, organize an activity that promotes healthy living, um, you know, whether it just be walking or something like that. But there's also things like, hey, could we make an emphasis on making CPR um, accessible yeah. to the community during yeah. this time of the year, right? Um, I think that with everything we've been living through and people have seen, for example, uh, athletes and sudden cardiac death, um, I feel like it's been more evident or more frequent lately. I don't know if it's just the media coverage, but I think CPR is definitely a great tool that everyone in the community should try to, you know, learn. I, I love that idea. Um, let me get into a very different thing. This is, let me get to specific signs and symptoms. Um, what are the signs that someone might be having a heart attack or an impending heart issue that you should be looking out for? Like if I have this, get help. Yeah. So I think as a clinician, the first thing that always catches my mind, because we have a lot of patients that come in and get evaluated for chest pain, right? Um, those chest pains that are aggravated by certain positions or movements aren't the ones that you should be worrying about, right? That always sounds more muscle skeletal to me. Um, the ones that, you know, kind of catch my eyes or, or give me red flags are the very classical, obviously, hey, the elephant sitting on your chest, you're diaphoretic, you're sweating. But the ones that I tend to worry more about are those patients that say, hey, doc, you know, I used to be able to walk 30 minutes and now I can't get to the mailbox without huffing and puffing, wow. right? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it makes you think of heart failure when you when they start to say, hey, I'm having some lower extremity edema or swelling of my legs and requiring multiple pillows to sleep. But that can also be a direct reflection of what the uh, status of the arteries around your heart is, right? Um, not everyone presents with classic angina or chest pain. Most of it is uh, kind of the, the, the telltale sign of the first thing that it manifests is a decreased exercise capacity. So, you know, if you see a sudden drop in what you could do a year ago and now you're struggling, that's definitely a reason to seek medical advice. Uh, is there anything specific, uh, women versus men? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I almost group women into the same group as our diabetics. Very atypical presentation with women, okay. right? They, they do not tend to come in and say, hey, I'm having chest pain. I see. They tend to come more saying, hey, I have this um, tingling sensation around the area of my left breast or my arm hurts. That's always a big one, right? Okay. They typically don't have that jaw pain. Um, but you know, we're, we're, we're all human. I get it. And, and so it's just, the key is just that to be persistent or, or ask for help if it's new or something along those lines. Yeah. And I mean, in us as cardiologists and, or, or any physician in general, we need to be listening to our patients, right. And understand that not everyone reads the book, especially when it comes to chest pain. So you need to be a little bit more sensitive to the fact, especially when you have females come in with chest pain. There's a lot going on in all facets of medicine and cardiology is one of those areas that it seems like there's always some huge leap in technology or something that's out there. What advancements in your field have you seen now that you, that you practice now with that really like say, my goodness, what a change, uh, a game changer for people out there who have heart health issues? Yeah, I think there's two things. I think we can start off uh, what, what have been the advancements in the realm of preventative medicine, okay? Um, I, I think as a clinician and cardiologist, we have a lot of patients coming in and asking about statins, and rightfully so. They're very important. Um, they're one of the few medications that have shown a decreased mortality um, in patients who have coronary artery disease and don't have heart failure, but they're poorly tolerated, and, and now we have other resources or other therapies such as the PSK9 inhibitors, right, Repatha injectables okay. that you can take twice a month or once a month and, um, you know, able to modify your modifiable risk factors, get your cholesterol down without all the side effects of the statins. So that for me is one of the things that quickly comes to mind. Um, I think as a interventionalist, um, needless to say, technology has advanced to the point where the tools that we use are much safer, but we also have a lot more technology to assess what's going on inside the arteries and that helps us choose one. Are we choosing the right size of equipment to put into your heart? Two, are we treating this lesion? You know, is it a, uh, a thrombus or is it a very calcified plaque? What do we need to do before we put stents? And so, you know, as a whole, 
uh, procedures have become quicker, they've become safer, and um, we have a lot more information to make an educated clinical decision, especially when you're, for example, for me, on our cath table and undergoing a procedure. Understood. I want to have you have uh, a question that often I like to ask uh, folks uh, that from different uh, specialties come in, and this has to do with common misconceptions. What's that one or two misconceptions that you would you know you hear very frequently in how you practice that you want to clear up today for our listeners with regards to heart health issues? Uh, what would those be and, and how would you, and what's the, what's the correct answer, if you will? Absolutely. I was, I think out of all the questions this is one that I was looking <laughs> forward to the most to answer. Um, you know, I, I touched about it a little early in our conversation, but uh, statin therapy and aspirins. I feel like, you know, those are two medications that people love it and they hate it and they love it. And, and as an interventional cardiologist or cardiologist in general, again, aspirin statins are the only two medications that reduce morbidity and mortality in patients who have coronary artery disease and don't have heart failure. We get a lot of patients coming in with abnormal cholesterols and, and they're saying, hey, my primary wants to start me on a statin. And they say, well, you know, I've read this and that about it. Uh, there's a lot of side effects. Uh, I'm not sure I want to start one now. And, you know, my, my, my question to them is, what's your family history? Let's go over your testing and l- l- let's see if we can give you enough information for you to make an educated decision with regards to your health. And I think I just want everyone to understand that, one, there's more than one statin, right? There's a gamut of statins that all have more or less side effects. And then, two, with the Repatha coming in now, um, you know, there's there's other opportunities to treat that cholesterol. But I think people should start putting more of a premium on these preventative medicines as opposed to trying to solve the solution once they have a problem. And same thing goes with aspirin. I think that's also a common question that we get. Hey, you know, I heard that I shouldn't be taking a daily aspirin. And and that's true. I don't think you can make a blanket statement that everyone needs to be taking a daily aspirin. But those patients that are over 60 years of age have comorbidities, which include hypertension or diabetes, they may benefit from, from an aspirin, right? So definitely speak with your physician and see if it's right for you. But it's it, with everything, there's risk and benefits, right? Let me ask uh, another question that I often also get has to do with uh, all these newfangled watches. And now everyone seems to have a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation uh, off of these watches. Uh, Can you comment about just the technology? Are those pretty accurate? And if someone picks up a weird pattern because of your watch telling you that they're picking up a weird pattern, should they check it out with someone like you? Absolutely. I mean, like those devices... um I think they're great for multiple things. I'm going to start off one by saying, I think it promotes a healthy lifestyle in the way that it tries to get you to move, right? And and I'm sure we all all of us that wear eye watches, we see our alerts go off. Hey, it's time to stand up. Hey, you haven't closed those circles. So right away, you know, I think that it's a fun way to kind of create competition between you and your spouse, you and your friends, or just you and yourself to see, hey, am I being active enough? When it comes to the newer series that you can do EKGs, they alert you about your rhythm, they alert you about your oxygen saturations, they actually have remarkably good algorithms to detect irregular rhythms. They can tell you if your pattern is irregular, if you might be experiencing atrial fibrillation. They can also tell you if your heart rate is too fast or too low. So it's, it's a great screening tool. I mean, it's not something that we use to make a diagnosis. Um, but it's definitely something that if your watch is alerting, you should absolutely seek medical attention and make sure it's nothing. And, um, you know, I, I've seen other instances where these things um, are very useful. For example, uh, I've seen events where there's emergencies on, on a plane and you have no medical equipment. You throw your iWatch on the person in distress, it's going to give you a quick EKG. It's going to tell you what wow. their stats are. Wow. And so although it's not a medical device, it really kind of helps you triage. So. I love that the ability to have that. Last two questions uh, in the time we have left, and and I, this I have to ask because these are questions that everyone's always asking. So number one, um, how much alcohol is okay as it pertains to heart health? Uh, that that seems to be such a common question. Can you comment on alcohol consumption? Yeah, that's a tricky question as a Hispanic. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I hear you, um, my friend. I hear you. <laughs> so the American Heart Association has guidelines, right? So first off saying there's no 
recommendation to smoking, right? There's, I, I say everything in moderation, but there's not, no moderation with smoking, and I want to reemphasize that. When it pertains to alcohol, um, the recommendation is one drink a day for females, two drinks a day for males, and that's not because our genders, right? It's typically based on body surface area. Um, but yeah, everything in moderation. And, and what are the side effects that you can experience from alcohol? Well, it increases your risk of having palpitations, right? Okay. Increases your risk of irregular rhythms. It increases your blood pressure. And all these things can have negative effects later on down the road. Um, so my recommendation to everyone is obviously there's there's times to be happy and celebrate, but you need to be responsible and everything in moderation. Dr. Karaskio, uh, this has been such a terrific conversation. I've learned a lot. I just want to thank you for coming in studio and talking all things heart health with us. Uh, during this particular holiday and month. We really appreciate you doing so. We hope you come back in and visit us again in the future. Absolutely. This is great. And thank you for having me. You betcha. We've been talking to Dr. Sebastian Carasquillo. He is an interventional and peripheral vascular disease uh, cardiologist at HCA Florida Memorial Hospital. Well, that's our program for today. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is on schizophrenia treatments. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at WJCT.org, or tag me on X at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening. Happy Valentine's, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop.